0: You're listening to Liberty Buzzard with Dustin Hammett and Thomas Umstead Jr. After watching Jurassic Park last night, I had the Indiana Jones theme running in my head.
1: I I watched uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark last night because Amazon Prime has all three of the Indiana Jones series. And I decided that uh, I'm going to watch them all again. And uh, so, yeah, that's how it got in my head. That's strange we both have that song in our head.
0: We're just we're just connected. You know? uh, Jurassic Park, by the way, the most recent one was actually surprisingly good. Really, was it? Chris yeah, Pratt, it had everything. Right? Yeah, it's Chris Pratt being Chris Pratt, and he was awesome as usual. Yeah, uh, okay. it had dino mercs, uh, really obnoxious dino mercs that made you very satisfied when they finally got their comeuppance uh, throughout. Oh, the Oh yes, there's nothing like uh, an
1: evil enemy that gets their comeuppance.
0: That's right. And uh, there was there was a twist. Uh, so it, it followed the general flow, but then there was a twist. It was a bit of a surprise. Oh, so that Thomas, we got to stop everything
1: and start recording. Oh my God. So much good <laughs> conversation. So much. No, we've
0: been recording. We've been recording. Oh okay. good. I'm I'm I never considered myself a Jurassic Park fan. Like I've gone and watched the movies and I've enjoyed them, but I, I've never thought of myself as like a fan of Jurassic Park. Like I don't own any of the merchandise or any of that sort of thing. But I discovered that I am married to a fan of the Jurassic Park franchise, and my wife, wow, who does not true. normally get into like horror, thriller, monster movies. You know, I, I was able to get her to watch the first Pacific Rim film, but the second one she was totally uninterested in. There is this beautiful exception for her in that dinosaurs are kind of like animals, and she likes animals, mm-hmm. and so we were able to watch this um, very exciting movie together and really enjoy it, it was it was a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, well, good. So y'all, is is that something that is? Uh, I mean, I'm a I'm a, I'm a movie. Uh, I just wait till everything comes out on Netflix or Amazon Prime. Um, a very rare instance, I will rent it when it comes out uh, to rent on Amazon if it's supposed to be like a really good movie. Otherwise, I rarely, rarely, rarely go out to see a movie anymore. So uh, was the mo- was Jurassic Park, is that still in the theaters or did y'all rent it?
0: Yeah, it came out in the theaters a couple of weeks ago and it's definitely worth seeing in the theaters. There's only a certain kind of film that I feel is made better by being on a big screen and... Big dinosaurs are definitely bigger, better than small dinosaurs on a small screen. <laughs> so there is a, an impact uh, to the scariness that is definitely lost when you're watching it on your iPad or on a TV screen on the other side of the room.
1: Um, I will say, Thomas, that I am not a Jurassic Park freak. However, and I was not a fan of the, uh, the spin off movies, the second, and the third, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, however,. Uh, I recall, what was I, 13, 14 at the time when the first movie came out, maybe a little bit younger. I recall uh, both reading Michael Crichton's book, Jurassic Park, and it was one of those books. I, I got it during the summer, and I was always a big reader even when I was a kid. And I think I read that thing cover to cover, and it's not a little book, uh, in about three days. I did nothing Uh, To the point where my mom got worried about me. She's like, are you eating? I did nothing but read that book cover to cover. It was a great book. (laughs) Makes me want to read it again. And then the movie came out. And I cannot tell you how stoked I was. And I watched the movie uh, pretty close to the book from what I remember. Um, But I remember just being, especially with the special effects as they were at the time, being enthralled with the special effects of Jurassic Park. Like, I remember getting chills up my spine in the original Jurassic Park when um, they, they come over the hill and they see, I think they were uh, Brachiosauruses and uh, some other dinosaurs. There was like this big uh, scenic uh, panoramic scene with a bunch of dinosaurs in there. They were all CGI. And I just got chills up my spine in that scene. And uh, just the thought of, you know, the possibility of dinosaurs being recreated. It's just always captured me. And I know it did millions of other people. I'm sure that's what captures your wife too. So, uh, yeah. Matter of fact, I think she just recently tweeted. I've got it in my Twitter feed here that she was dreaming about Jurassic world all night long last night. So it must've been a pretty good movie.
0: My wife has a very interesting Twitter. She's much more interesting on Twitter than I am. And I, I get compliments frequently on how good my wife is on Twitter. She is exceptional <laughs> who on Twitter. people also follow me on Twitter. And no one ever compliments my Twitter. She is really good but on Twitter. Uh, I love her
1: Twitter feed. As a matter of fact, I think her pinned tweet is, I'm married down in the alphabet but up in SEO. So I think you're helping her get out there in the world of Twitter.
0: <laughs> yeah, which is a really great joke, but only for nerds who know what SEO stands for. And if you don't know, you can you can ask your Google in the privacy of your of your own phone. I will say this about the Jurassic Park book: I think it may have been the first adult book I ever read. So I was a slow. I was slow to learn to read. I, I really struggled learning to read. And it was I was nine or ten before I was comfortable reading like youth books, like chapter books for children. And I think I was in my early teens. I don't remember exactly how old I was, but I remember getting my hands on Jurassic Park. Uh, And the book itself is not really an action thriller like the movie is. It's more of like a political philosophical discourse (laughs) over chaos theory. And he's just using the dinosaurs as an excuse to preach the gospel of chaos theory and I, I was totally fascinated by it and bewildered yeah. that the second book, Lost World, had nothing at all in common with the movie Lost World. Those two were completely disconnected in terms of storytelling. It was almost like they just copy and pasted the title of the story and then kind of diverged at that point in the woods. And uh, Interesting. I really enjoyed
1: it, though. Interesting point about chaos theory that actually helped me later on in my future career as a uh, marine artilleryman, especially when I was a teacher, Um, because I kind of I used the book and I used the movie at the time. This is back in 2006, 2007, um, and enough people had read it still by that point, even though I think it was still 15, 16, 17 years old by that point. Uh, the movie was um, that it was kind of fading from memory, but I still use the concept of chaos theory to help demonstrate a principle of statistics and, um, and, and probability and how we as uh, Marine artillerymen were able to be so accurate is because we were able to predict so much of, uh, you know, the, the the flight of an artillery round. So, you know it's it's interesting how me reading science fiction as a kid and i love chaos theory i absolutely love chaos theory and everything about it, butterfly effect all that kind of stuff i'm fascinated by it but it's interesting how reading that stuff as a kid totally clicked 15 16 17 years later when i am an adult teaching other adults about you know artillery rounds and how how we can predict where they will impact you know, based on all these conditions. So it, it, it's just kind of weird how that stuff you read as a kid influences you later as an adult.
0: So give us the Cliff Notes version of Chaos Theory for those uh, listening who've never heard of it.
1: So, and and, and I, ho- I hope you'll correct me if uh, if my interpretation is wrong, but this has always been my interpretation, is there the, the world is one big giant system. And what that means is that, you know, we're not, each of us is not acting alone in isolation. You know, everything, you know, from people, all the way down to the smallest bacterium, we all have an effect on each other in one way or another. And uh, the the theory, as I put it forward, when I was teaching the class was, you know, if there was some way, big if, right, if there was some way where we could capture as information the actions of every single entity on this planet and how it would, you know, this is is pretty impossible, but in theory, if you could do this, if you could capture every single action and the subsequent reaction in a predictable way you could predict everything on the face of the earth right that's you know that, that, that's the the extreme version if you could do this which you, you know that you can't so chaos theory basically says that there is so much stuff going on that it's 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 impossible to predict uh, in any meaningful way what's going to happen in the future because, as is stated in the Jurassic Park movie, uh, you know, a butterfly flaps its wings, uh, in one part of the world, and that small gust of wind sets off a, uh, a chain reaction, um, you know, to the infinite degree that that air particle collides with another air, air particle, which collides with another, that starts a typhoon in the Sea of Japan, ultimately. Now can you actually prove this no but that's a theory and it's a fascinating theory that you know one action by one small thing can have this ripple enormous effect and I, in the context of Jurassic Park was um it's impossible what was the, what was his name Dr Malcolm or whatever the character in Jurassic Park his statement was in chaos theory it's impossible to control control is an illusion because there are, there are just too many infinite variables to accurately predict what's going to happen. And the other thing that he likes to say in there and that I really like as a philosophy is life always finds a way. Uh, life is so resilient. Life is intelligent. Life is a beautiful creation. Um, and it, it, it always finds a way around control. And I think that's the same for people too. You know, You can try to control people. You can try to control morality. You can try to control as much as you want. Control is an illusion. Um, there, you know, people, life is always going to find a way. So how was that explanation, Thomas? Did I, did I th- get it pretty much right?
0: Yeah, no, you, you did. You did very good. I was on the Wikipedia page for Chaos Theory while you were going down it. So I was, I was double checking your work because, uh, it's been a while since I was 13 and read Jurassic Park. So I'm not saying that uh, my original memory is, uh, very good of Chaos Theory, but it is, um, what's fascinating about Chaos Theory is this in with Jurassic Park, all of them really is that it's ultimately they are stories about man trying to play God and create life and control systems, like you were saying. And ultimately, the conclusion of every Jurassic Park film, not to spoil it, but if you've seen the first ones, you can kind of see uh, where it's going. And that is, man is not God. (laughs) And when man tries to play God, bad things happen and people get eaten by dinosaurs. Um, You know, we create these monsters in our attempt to play god and while we can and create then they eat us. <laughs> what what we create ends up being evil or uncontrollable at the very least and i think that that's a powerful lesson i i'm not too concerned about us bringing dinosaurs back i know that with um technology such as it is some still hold out hope for that i think it's much more likely that we'll bring something like a woolly mammoth back um, but I do think that there are a lot of ways where we are playing God right now, uh, with science and technology. And I think that, you know, we need to be cautious. <laughs> you know, uh yes, we are gods in that sense of like we have the power of creation in our hands. Uh we can write stories, we can create music, uh, but we have to be very careful that we don't become evil gods and that we don't let this power go to our heads and that we use it uh in a trivial way or in a um evil way so what's interesting in the first set of jurassic park films they are using this godlike power to uh basically entertain at least especially in the first one right the whole point is they're going to create disney world with dinosaurs right and in the later ones they are uh trying to weaponize these dinosaurs and make them even more aggressive make them even more dangerous make them controllable uh so they can sell them to militaries and um uh pro tip not a good idea (laughs) dinosaurs are dangerous enough ah military industrial complex ah they ruin everything (laughs) Yeah, isn't that what you wanted on the battlefield, Dustin? You're there with your artillery and your marines and you're like, Man, if only we had some dinosaurs here, then we could really tell the Taliban what's what and who's who. Look,
1: Thomas, <laughs> I'm not gonna say I don't want that. I saw uh I saw a I think it was on Facebook, an ad for a t shirt the other day that has Theodore Roosevelt holding a minigun. For those don't who don't know what that is, think of uh um uh, Jesse Ventura's character in uh, The First Predator, and he's holding that enormous, uh, looks like a Gatling gun. That's a minigun. Uh, they still use them. <laughs> they're, they're, they're a pretty awesome weapon. Anyway, it's got Theodore Roosevelt holding a minigun as he sits atop a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Um, uh, uh, you know, I think the background is kind of a mix between San Juan Hill and uh, modern day Afghanistan. I'm not going to say I don't want a dinosaur, Thomas, because if I could write. Tyrannosaurus Rex with a minigun into combat, that would be pretty awesome. I'm, I'm not going to lie to you.
0: There, there's a whole series of those paintings, by the way, of all of the famous presidents. Uh, so there's one with uh, George Washington. He's got like a robot eagle on his shoulder and he's holding like this oh, giant yeah, sniper rifle. And there's yeah. one with uh, Kennedy is on the moon and he has like some severed alien heads around his belts and it's, uh, <laughs> uh,
1: it's it's very I... fun i uh, uh, i ronald I reagan it. riding it's... a bear i think <laughs> <laughs> i just love those shirts i i don't know if i would ever actually spring for the money to buy one uh but uh, i've i've <laughs> i've contemplated just springing the money for to buy one so i can wear it as an obnoxious t-shirt uh <laughs> like at, at the beach or you know but of course somebody is always always going to get offended by it so you always got to worry about wearing it to a public place and uh you know somebody trying to rip your shirt off of your shoulders and, you know, next thing you know, somebody took a video of it and you've gone viral on the internet. So is that something I really want? It's probably not worth the price of admission.
0: Well, if you want to see the uh, shirts that we're talking about or the pictures we're talking about, go to libertybuzzard.com forward slash 019. We'll have links uh, to those in the show notes. But, uh, you know, we're talking about the ethics of breeding dinosaurs and the ethics of playing God. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit. I know this is our book discussion day about the book Persuasion by Robert Cialdini, which is a book all about how people think and how you can persuade people before you talk to them to get them to do what you want or think what you want. And before we get into his specific techniques, I wanted to talk a little bit about the ethics of that. Like, what are the ethics of using these powerful persuasive techniques? When is it a good idea? When is it a bad idea? Your thoughts.
1: So Cialdini was very clear in his uh, first book, and he reiterated in his second book, Persuasion. About the ethics of his research because, uh, there he, he stated in his books that he got a lot of criticism from his community and from others saying, you know, you're teaching salesmen how to, uh, sell unwanted products. This is the implication how to sell unwanted, unnecessary, overpriced products to people using these psychological voodoo tricks. And yes, is that a possibility? Yes. Um, and. But he also makes it very clear that it's a very short-term gain. Um, this is me very, very much par- paraphrasing him. It's a short-term gain. So you, know, you might sell, um, you know, a, a thirty-dollar sweatshirt that's actually worth, you know, two dollars to an unsuspecting victim using a bunch of psychological tricks, but ultimately that person's going to realize what happened to them is going to, um, is going to regret that. And it's going to come back to bite you in the end. So he's very, very explicit in his statements in his books that, you know, you have to use this information ethically because if you don't, it's going to come back to bite you. Kind of like if you, you know, if you create a, a dinosaur from uh, a frog DNA mixed with mosquitoes, um, in trails, you know, you're you're going to have a dinosaur that tries to eat you in the end. So it's just because it kind of segues, you know, our topic about Jurassic World and with our topic about, uh, you know, psychology and the use of psychology to uh, promote salesmanship because these books are huge in the sales world. Uh, his first book, which I actually thought was a better book, um, Influence, the Psychology of Persuasion, uh, and this book, Persuasion, really, it takes a lot of scientific research and and it shows that we as human beings, uh, you know, this is me just picking a number out of the air here. You know, ninety-five percent of our, our of our decision making process is driven by emotion and mental laziness. Thinking is really, really hard, we don't want to do it. And we develop all these mental shortcuts so that we don't have to think because thinking <laughs> is painful. And I agree; I don't like to think. Thinking is painful, so we all have these mental shortcuts uh, that that really allow us to get by on a daily basis without expending too much energy on thinking about unnecessary things so if a salesman can manipulate these mental shortcuts that we each have biologically ingrained to us then potentially you know you could not even just a salesman you're also talking about politicians uh scott adams in his bi- book win Bigly, who is also a Cialdini fan uh says this about donald trump you know donald trump's uh, he, who he calls a master persuader, uses a lot of these very same techniques uh, in, in Scott Adams' argument to influence the population on a mass scale. So uh, on, a, on an ethical basis, Cialdini is very clear and I agree with him. You can use these quote-unquote tricks. Um, you know, you can call them a parlor trick, but I think they're a little bit more than that. I think they're you know, legitimate techniques to manipulate the human psyche. Um, to your advantage... But eventually it's going to come back to bite you in the butt. What do you think, Thomas?
0: I think there's nothing new under the sun. And these techniques uh, and people advocating them were the same sort of people that Socrates came across back 2,500 years ago. And it was called sophistry back then. It was the powerful techniques of influence and um, persuasion. And the uh, it's important to know them. And you'll notice that if you read Plato, Socrates deeply understands sophistry and he's able to use those techniques. So I I don't feel that not learning them is a good idea, because once they are out there, you have to understand how they work, if anything, just to be able to defensively protect your mind from undue influence, Um, because you're exactly right. Trump went to school on this. And when people were talking about how he was playing four dimensional chess or three dimensional chess, the third dimension was this persuasion, these um, subconscious um, emotional responses. And he completely outmaneuvered the Hillary campaign until the last month or two. So Hillary um, brought in different advisors in the last couple of months and finally pulled it together and actually got on the same league and on the same playing field as Trump in terms of messaging and in terms of um, emotional connecting with people. But at that point, it was too late. Quick point there, Thomas. Yeah.
1: Matter of fact, Scott Adams uh, uh, hypothesizes in his book, without any certain proof, but with some pretty interesting evidence, that um, Robert Cialdini was an advisor to uh, first Bernie Sanders, and then after Bernie Sanders uh, lost the Democratic primary, secondly to Hillary Clinton. And his hypothesis, and it's a very interesting hypothesis, said that Bernie Sanders did so well because Cialdini was behind him. Because Bernie Sanders, you know, by himself is really not that interesting of a candidate. Um,
0: and and there's no reason he, for him to do, do so well because he's yeah, not even no a real Democrat, so. right? It's That's like, right. How is the number two guy in the Democrat primary a guy who wasn't even a Democrat until six months ago? Like that. That's that right. is really impressive. Um, and then
1: whenever Cialdini hopped over to uh, Hillary's campaign, that's when uh, Scott Adams says that she her campaign really took off. And I think it's a very compelling argument that he makes, and I'm willing to b- bite it because I, I think it's true. Anyway, right. sorry no, to interrupt. Go ahead.
0: No, no, the, the, no, this is good. And what Cialdini presents in this book is not um, groundbreaking. It's not like no one else is teaching this in the sense of, you know these are solid principles that are taught in a lot of these books, but it is important to understand how these books, or sorry, how these ideas um, work. And so I wanted to talk about a couple of them. Uh, the first thing you talked about in the book is how to build trust and some kind of tricky ways of doing that. Um, what what were your thoughts on his uh, trust building uh, suggestions?
1: So a lot of this uh, derives from his original book. And I think there were seven, I'm going to have to go back and look. I think there were seven techniques um, that he mentioned in that book, which are, you know, uh, I'll say, quote unquote, scientifically proven. They put these studies in labs using human beings, and it it showed what would be called in the academic academic community, statistically significant proof that they have an effect on the way individuals act. And so, or their decision-making process. So one of them was um, uh, liking the person who is uh, is a persuasion uh, or an influencer, or whatever you want to call them. So liking the person because, you know, we want to do business with people we like, right? Um, Another one was social influence. So if uh, everybody else is doing it, we're a bunch of lemmings in a lot of ways, and we really are. If everybody else is doing it, we're going to hop on too because the human psyche uh, is very much a social animal. And if we see social proof that, uh, th- things are popular or working, what have you, we're going to hop on that bandwagon. Um, and I'm drawing blanks here. So liking okay. social proof. And another, yeah, another so, one
0: he talked about was like, I, I forget the phrase he is. It's like a critical moment or a sacred moment or a, um, a, you know, Yeah, he very much mo- talks
1: about timing. Right.
0: Uh, and he talked about how, you know, somebody had done a big favor for him and then asked him or he had done a favor for him. And then as he was saying, thank you so much for this favor. This person then asked him for a huge favor in return and how it was really hard to say no because of the timing. It's like if he had asked, you know, one day later, one yes. day sooner, it would have been very yes. easy to say no. And, you know, that seems like this. Oh, my goodness. There's this. That's groundbreaking. Except, well, that's a very that, old that instance... saying for it strike while the iron is hot. <laughs> so, yeah.
1: So that, that instance was also about timing, but uh, in that particular example, uh, the timing was important, but uh, the timing was important because, uh, hold on just a second. It's a form of priming. Timing was important because, uh, it, 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 it was the priming, but it was the way in which he primed. So reciprocation, so uh, favor giving. So, uh, he's very big on this. People, it, it's very it's very innate into our, our human psychology um, that uh, we return favors. No human wants to owe another human. So if somebody does a favor for us or we perceive that a favor has been done for us, we feel obligated to return that favor. And apparently this is something that's true across uh, cultures, but it's very strong in our Western culture. So in that specific example, uh, Cialdini talks about the... Uh, professor or the uh, uh, school administrator who called him said, Hey, we did this for you. 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 You don't have to worry about anything when you come over here. So he said, Hey, we did all this stuff for you. The implication, the subtle implication is that, Hey, we scratched your back. Now you have to scratch ours. So his timing was perfect because he said, we scratched your back. And as soon as he said that now he asked for something, um, which was, uh, I think in that example was to teach an MBA class, which, um, in Cialdini's phrasing said it totally derailed his point in, in being a guest teacher at the university he was going to because he had anticipated in, uh, being a, a guest faculty and spending most of his time writing the book, uh, which, you know, he, uh, was talking about right then and there. And that was completely derailed because all of his time uh, ended up being taken by teaching uh, this one or two classes that he agreed to teach. And he said he would never would have agreed to do it because it went against his goals. He never would have agreed to do it if it had not been uh, primed um, with, with a favor. So this, this idea of reciprocation is very strong uh, in, in our humanity. And that's, 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 that was the real timing aspect of it. In, in that point. So that, that was from his first book, uh, building trust and influence. And one of the seven ways And I got to go back and, and look it up on, uh, on the Googles here to figure out what all sevens are, all seven of those, uh, areas are. Cause I can't remember off the top of my head.
0: Yeah. And if you are curious on like how Trump used these, uh, the book Win bigly by Scott Adams is the book uh, to read because Scott Adams was explaining it as it was happening, uh, in his blog. So a lot of people have been doing Monday morning quarterbacking, after the election scott adams has been saying this since like 26 or 2014 2015 yeah kind of from the beginning and 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 really predicted this and 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 there's a there is a bit of like chest thumping and he was like i was right all all along take that haters you know in many ways this book was his victory lap which is like okay fine whatever you predicted way early who was going to win the election. but uh, it is it is really fascinating and it is to, it is important to realize that we are not as rational as we think we are. Uh, so this is one of the interesting things about you know, Russia meddling in the election and trying to trigger a civil war and why people aren't more upset about that is that they're like, well, I don't think I was influenced because everyone thinks that they personally are a rational actor. And that the decisions that they make are rational and they are not influenced by any of these subtle subconscious things. And if history has taught us anything, it's that we are all very manipulatable, and especially if you don't know how you're being manipulated and how often how something is put into context affects your view of it far more than yeah. you realize. And yeah. controlling the context and controlling attention, one of the things... Um, Cialdini said that was really powerful He's he like, the media is not good at telling you what to think so people think what they think uh, and the media doesn't change that very easily, but the media is amazing at telling you what to think about, and I was like ooh, yeah, that's really good because that's absolutely true, right the, uh, and Trump brilliantly used the media to get people thinking about the things that he wanted them thinking about And he was able to keep the message on his side of the debate rather than the issues that were more important to Hillary. And he was able to focus his attention. And he realized that when people are hating on him for a position that he has and they're talking about his position, it sucks all of the oxygen out of the room for Hillary to talk about anything. So uh, he was able to use people's hatred uh, very effectively. Because remember, hatred and love are... The, like the same side of the coin. They're not even different sides of the coin. They're the same side of the coin. The other side of the coin is indifference. Uh, and So love and hate are very similar. And what Trump didn't want was that other side of the coin, the indifference, the not caring. He wanted people, he wants the whole world to care passionately about him, one way or the other. And I'll say that's one, one thing that is somewhat unique about this show is that I don't have passionate feelings about Trump. I don't love him and I don't hate him. I have very uh, nuanced feelings, you know, it, and it depends on the day and depends on what he's doing. And um, one of the things we've been trying to do with this show and why we pick at the news, the dead news, is that we're trying not to talk about the thing that everybody else is talking about when they're talking about it. <laughs> we're trying not to be manipulated by the media saying, hey, everyone, talk about these 12 boys that were captured in, or uh, trapped in a cave in Thailand. You know, everyone's talking about that. We're not talking about it, although I, am, I guess I'm talking about it now. So fail. We've fallen into the trap. It's so it. hard.
1: <laughs> they got you, Thomas. They, they got, got you. Me.
0: They got me.
1: Yeah. Uh, and in in his book, Persuasion, he talks about the, uh, is that the, the uh, primacy effect? Or, you know, in, in um, I believe that some behavioral economists that uh, Thomas and I are familiar with uh, by the name of uh, Kahneman and Tversky. They're they're hugely famous in the behavioral science and the economics world, uh, where those two world worlds collide. Uh, they're hugely famous in the behavioral economics world for a lot of these same reasons that Cialdini Chal- talks about. And uh, I think Kahneman and Tversky would describe that as the um, the availability bias. So we're, we're, we're predisposed to believe that something is important based on the availability of the information. So the media, in, in this case, Cialdini, I think, says what's focal is the most important. The media can't tell us what to think, just like you said, but they being in control of, uh, you know, the information, uh, most of the information that gets out there, and you can't write about everything, they're going to only write about the things that make them money, the things that sell. And what things sell is drama. You know, to boring things like economics sell not to most people. Drama sells, and Donald Trump is a bunch of drama. He absolutely sells, and unlike you, I won't say I'm indifferent to Donald Trump. I, during the 2016 primaries, I really disliked Donald Trump, um, and one of the reasons is because I'm a, I'm, I'm I respect John McCain a lot. And as a military member, I, I really disliked some of the stuff he said about the military and about John McCain. Um, that really turned me off to candidate Trump. Having said that, um, you know he gets elected, and I start looking at him more, especially when I start looking at him in the in the frame of a Scott Adams, and you know trying to objectively just look at what he's doing. I have gone from uh, a feeling of distaste to Donald Trump to being fascinated by him. Uh, because he is fascinating, and um, you know, I think in our last show we had, or I, I said this analogy of uh, Donald Trump and uh, the mainstream media are like a uh, are, are like a trailer park uh, abusive couple. Um, they just they just keep going round and round, and they feed off of each other. And it's absolutely amazing to see him manipulate the media and to see him dominate the airwaves to make sure he's the most important thing out there. Um, yeah, so it's... he. I don't know if he's read Cialdini's book, but he absolutely has a incredible grasp um, on human psychology and what they want to see. And he is a performer. He's an entertainer. And to bring Donald Trump into kind of contemporary today events, he goes out there and he has this meeting with NATO... And he's completely contentious. And what I will say to, to, uh, to you, Thomas, about you know his interactions uh, with, with some of the members of NATO and some of the things he's stated out there, I won't say he—well, he, what I will say is he doesn't give a crap what those other political leaders think about him. Or he does—I I don't, I don't know. He doesn't care so much that he's not willing to go out there and make outrageous statements. What he does know is that all of these statements that he makes— Make his base love him even more because he's going out there. And, uh, one of the things that Cialdini talks about in both of his books is the concept of freeloading. Human beings detest because of this reciprocity concept in our, in our, in our social DNA. Human beings detest the idea of a moocher, of a freeloader. Uh, you call somebody a freeloader or a moocher. I mean, they are, they are lowest of the low. People mistrust them. People don't like them. So he actually uses the word freeloader when he's talking about NATO member states because they're not, uh, they're not ponying up to their portion of the defense budget that was agreed on in the, in the, in the NATO treaty. And he's calling him out and he's calling him freeloader. And of course they're hating him for this, but his base is eating it up. Because his base are the type of people that hate freeloaders and they love the fact that he's saying it. The fact that he's not scared to say it, they absolutely love it. And he's genius for saying it. It's absolutely genius. Where it gets us on the national stage or international stage, I have no clue. But he is just a genius politician.
0: On the plus side, his base loves him even more. On the downside, (laughs) we lost all of our allies. (laughs) You know, you give a little, you get a little. So it is true that, um, you know, we spend more to defend some of these NATO countries than they spend to defend themselves. And the left often holds up countries like Germany. It's like, look how great the medical care is in Germany. It's like, yeah, it is great because we subsidize their government. American taxpayers help cover expenses of the German government because the number one expense of most governments is national defense. And when you have the, you know, big, scary United States with troops You know, U.S. Marines in your country, no one wants to invade you and you don't feel like you have to spend any money on national defense, which gives you a lot more money left over for things like healthcare. Whereas in the United States, not only do we pay for our own national defense, but we pay for the national defense of all of our allies, which gets very expensive. So um, I think, you know, in many ways, it's like, what are they going to do? right? Because they're freeloading, all they can do is (laughs) whine and maybe start paying more for their own defense. Um, you know, they're not in a good position to do anything about it because everything they would do would cost them money. And that's the one thing that we're trying to get them to do is to spend more money. Um, I do think that we should try to keep good relationships with Canada and England and Israel. Like if we could just keep those three relationships and if I were to add one more, maybe Japan, um, like those are the relationships that are really critical and South Korea so those those are the ones that we really can't alienate everybody else I feel like there is some room uh, to to um, move things around so to speak and uh, try to get them to pony up their fair share it'll it'll be interesting to see how this pans out but we do want to know what you think uh, if you want to pick up a copy of persuasion uh, go to the show notes we'll have a link uh, to the book on Amazon and you can get it on audible if you're a Audiobook listener. In fact, I'll even put in my coupon code. If you're not a member of Audible, you can get a free book if you sign up with my link. Uh, it's using uh, the coupon code Novel Marketing, and you'll get a free copy of any book you want. Uh Persuasion's pretty good. Uh or Re- uh Robert Chalditi's other book, Influence, uh maybe even better, is a better place to start. Um, but there's a lot of great books on Audible, and I encourage you become a reader. Spend less time consuming the news and more time reading, and you will be a happier, more informed person. Yeah, what he said. <laughs> so uh, you've been list- uh, I'm Thomas Sumstat Jr. I'm Dustin Hammett. and you've been listening to Liberty Buzzard.